It takes more than digging through technical metrics until your eyes turn red to be a great software engineer. This is Soft Skills Engineering, episode 149. I'm your host, Dave Smith. I'm your host, Jameson Dance. Soft Skills Engineering is a weekly advice show for software developers about non-technical topics. Um, why would it make your eyes turn red? You know, just like, I don't know, you're just staring at the screen for hours and hours, scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. If they were like really good metrics, would it make your eyes turn green? <laughs> would they, or would it heal your bloodshot eyes? <laughs> yes, but that is not what the show is about. It's not about nice visuals for your failing metrics. Okay, it's good. Good to know. And that reminds us, we have a special guest with us today. Hello. <laughs> I'd like I'd like to introduce Netta Amini, who is joining us. Welcome, Netta. Hi. Uh, I am a software engineer at CJ Affiliate, and I just waved at a camera that doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> I I work on internal systems, but I also am a front-end chapter lead, so I specialize kind of in uh, designing component systems and things like that. And I'm here to give the best advice I can, I guess. I don't know. We'll see. Well, you know, it doesn't have to be the best. You could, you know, we'll be good with second best. The best I can give. My personal Any, best. Anyone, anyone who listens to this show long enough knows that <laughs> the advice is not, <laughs> the quality of the advice is not what brings people here. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> then I'm, I'm amongst good company then. We have a low bar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, we'd like to thank our patrons. We would like to thank Matthew Votovich. No, Agile Ventures. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Oh no, okay. Voitovich. <laughs> Matthew Voitovich. We we need to apologize. We've been saying Matthew's name wrong for like two years. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh. Did you ever see the Simpsons episode where he's looking for the license plates? Bart's looking for a license plate with his name on it, and he no. only finds Bort. <laughs> no. <laughs> and then there's a bunch of people around him who are also named Bort. <laughs> no. Maybe that's the situation we're in now. Anyways, okay. uh, yeah, thank you to Matthew Voitovich, the Agile Ventures Charity, Zach Grannon, Luis Santos, Nick Cantar, Sean Clayton, Sonic the Hedgehog, Maurice Rousseau, and Chris Hogan. Thank you so much, and thank you to everyone else who has supported the show. If you would like to do that, you can go to our website, softskills.audio, and click support us on Patreon. All right, All right. should we uh, jump into it? Please. Yeah. I'll read our first question here. This comes from an anonymous listener who says, my engineering career started out pretty promising. But along the way, I took a couple of unfortunate decisions and jobs that instead of helping me grow as an engineer were a big setback. When your career takes a few too many bad turns, how do you steer it back to where you want it to go? This one was a really interesting one because it's interesting giving advice without much context, but I, I think there is something kind of holistic everyone can take away from this. Um, Let's hear it. Oh, well, I guess the thing <laughs> give, is, give is it that... To me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think this is something that you guys bring up a lot in this podcast, but it's the idea that, you know, you should always be interviewing. You should always kind of, shouldn't be afraid to go and look at other things. And just because you're kind of in a position that, I don't know, maybe you don't feel like your technical prowess might be good. Like you maybe at like a shop that wasn't pushing you enough. Um, doesn't mean that you can't find a place that'll do that for you. Does that make sense? And also it's good to just bomb interviews. <laughs> absolutely is so good yeah and they make it makes great stories later. yeah <laughs> later yes <laughs> in the moment in the it's moment. terrible <laughs> oh man 
Aren't all good stories like that, though? Yeah, they're not in, good in the beginning, but then afterwards. And then later, you're great. sitting around with your friends, all just having a good laugh. At the expense of yourself, yeah. <laughs> assuming you survive. Yes. The, assuming, wait, as, hang on. Assuming you survive, we're talking about job interviews. Are you suggesting that there's like death traps in these interviews? I, like, I was assuming that he was saying other kind of adventures, but you know, maybe okay. it's a particular dangerous job interview. Who knows? I don't know. If I, if you read Twitter, there's a lot of really negative comments about job interviews. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Mr. Bond, <laughs> reverse this linked list before the laser <laughs> chops you in, in half. half. Right. That's exactly what I was thinking. Is that not what everyone else's interview process is like? Really confused. We're filtering for people who can reverse link lists under extreme pressure, threat of bodily harm or death. You see this laptop we're giving you has a USB cable coming out of it and a timer. Connected to the USB <laughs> cable is an IoT device, which has a blade hanging above your head. If you can get this test case to turn green before the timer goes off, <laughs> you can walk away in one piece. Ready, you go. You said IoT, so you can probably just like log into it with root root yeah as the username and password Admin and turn password it off. and turn it off yeah you could probably do <laughs> <Yeah>. that hopefully <laughs> that was actually up. the test behind the test <laughs> and that's how you got the pen testing job <laughs> you wanted you wanted the javascript job but no nope you did that one clearly <laughs> uh i'm, I'm kind of wondering like what what would make what qualifies as an unfortunate or or kind of negative job experience? Is it is it like Netta? You mentioned a place that doesn't push you or that you don't grow. I feel like there's also the potential that you could be working on stuff that's just like hard to communicate the value of to other people. Maybe your projects get canceled, or it's really niche internal things that mm -hmm. I, I don't know. You you don't have much to show for it. Like what? Yeah. What do you think that means? I can understand like that. I have also been going through this kind of existential crisis of, and I've heard other people too, where it's, um, you don't feel like the thing that you are working on, like is producing a lot of value outside. Um, which I can yeah. understand. Like you talk to people and they're like, I'm a doctor and I'm, and, you know, yeah. <laughs> systems, like I do all these crazy things. And then you just, there and like, I just make a product that does add tech. <laughs> like things like that and you just sit there and you're like yeah that doesn't sound super cool and you know don't feel super I motivated optimize by the it. conversion flow of yeah or i don't know yeah not to not to i mean there's lots of valuable work but i see what you mean where some work feels like it's hard to communicate that value to other people like to me the 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 uh a big setback or bad job would be one where you're like on a dead-end skill set development track like i'll tell like you an example mumps. like what Mumps. Isn't that a database thing? I saw I mumps know. on a resume the other day. I, I've heard there's a disease called mumps. There, there, is, there is, but I'm pretty sure. And someone named a database after it? <laughs> there is some cognitive dissonance there. <laughs> the database was invented after the disease, so cool. they have no excuse. <laughs> okay, yeah. that's just ridiculous. And yes, yeah, that, would, that, that might qualify. It's well, like the, mainframe I'm, data processing stuff from the 60s. Yeah, that's not exactly what I was thinking, <laughs> 60s but technology. But, like a stack but, that's not very up-to-date and has no, like, potential to be up-to-date? Well, I mean, I guess if yeah, you're like exactly. a like, Fortran programmer, you're actually in really high demand nowadays. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'll give you like a, I'll give you an example that's kind of an extreme example, but I know someone who had a, a good like 10 to 15 year software engineering career 
But then the latter half was spent entirely on developing PeopleSoft applications. Mm, okay. And after doing that for like five or six years, suddenly you go to job interviews and people look at you weird, you know, and it's like, are you just a PeopleSoft expert? And that's all you are, you know? And so it's like, well, now I can't get a job. And mm. so I think that's or like the, Salesforce that's the or these, these, yes. these kind of locked in platforms. That's interesting. Yes, a, a Salesforce developer would be kind of like today's equivalent of that. And like Salesforce is not going to be around in 10 years. I think most people will agree on that. And so not, like, I think Salesforce, man, what's his name? Mark Benioff? I mean, We've made a powerful same, enemy. Same things happened to <laughs> Flash, right? There was a whole group of people who yeah. were Flash developers. And then, you know, Amble was like, no. And that just completely put a whole bunch of people who are this kind of, I don't, don't want to say like one trick pony, but like kind of, you know, they put all their eggs into one basket. And I can see a job yes. maybe forcing you to do that, right? Sure. Hmm. Um, which is, I think, I mean... I hate to say, like, you know, you should work outside of work to develop your portfolio. But um, if it's something that's really concerning you and that's kind of a thing that you're doing and you want to keep a career in software development, um, it's good to um, exercise uh, your abilities outside, develop yourself outside of work, keep up to date with things. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Like another way I could see a job going off the rails like this would be like you get this job as a software engineer, but then there's this need to do something for the sales team, you know, and then the sales team loves you. And then next thing you know, you're kind of embedded with them and you're going on sales calls. And then you wake up one day and it's been two years and you haven't written any code and, and you're basically a salesperson, mm. you know. And so it's like I, it's it's the same thing, though, where you are in a job you hate you didn't even realize you hated it. It happened so slowly, like the frog boiling thing, right? Yeah. So now how do you get out of it? And I think, Netta, you hit it just right on the head. You gotta be interviewing constantly. And and what this means is that if you're in a job that you feel like isn't taking you where you wanna go, those interviews are probably gonna be really hard at first. You know, because people are gonna ask you questions you aren't prepared for, both technically and about yourself. Yeah, and I mean, interviews are a really good way to know what is like, the most up-to-date on tech stocks and things like that too, right? I mean, you can always get your information on Twitter, but yeah, that's a bit too yeah. fast-paced. You kind of want to see like what people are looking for, uh, what they aren't, core skills, how they're applicable, things like that. Speaking of which, I, I, have, I haven't interviewed in a while, so... Oh, yeah. I was just thinking that. I feel like a huge hypocrite because I don't, I don't know that I... Do I directly say interview all the time? I think Dave says that. Yeah. And then I sit silently because I interview every time I switch jobs. So I'm worried if I interview more, that means I'll just switch jobs more. <laughs> I mean, there are people come and ask or talk like, you, you know, you have like recruiters reach out on LinkedIn and, and it's always good to like, you know, follow up a bit and just be like, oh, well, what is this position? What does it entail? I don't always go directly into the interview process of like doing the, you know, doing the on screening and the screening and stuff like that, because that's a bit of a mm -hmm. time commitment. But it's always good to just see what's out there, you know. Yeah. So interview more, practice outside of work on your skills a little bit. What about? I feel like there's probably a confidence. It would it would be a blow to my confidence if I felt like I started off really strongly and then I just ended up in a place I didn't like. What do you think this person could do to kind of just restore? their own belief in their ability to be a talented developer. There's community stuff. There's, there's outside project building, things like that too. Um, open source is a very, it's like an open world that you can mess around with 
I don't, I don't know if that's mm-hmm. a great way to build confidence, but it's a great way to practice and mess around. And I've got it. You start and win a technical argument on the internet. Oh, there it is. <laughs> just get a lot of Twitter followers and then you're set. That yep. just, that'll just get you the job. Every time you feel a little jolt of imposter syndrome, you just count and you say, that's way too many people to follow an imposter. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no one would ever follow an Not Not that many people yeah. follow an imposter. Yeah. You can do that. And then you need to like start arguing with someone about tabs and spaces. Then you're set. Yeah. And the problem though, Jameson, is I've never seen one of those arguments be won by anyone. Wouldn't it build your confidence if you were the first person to win, though? <laughs> I think the real winner is the first person who, like, you know, signs off first. Who just stops responding? That's the real winner of any internet conversation. Yes, you get you get points based on how many follow up comments you get from the other person that you don't <laughs> yeah. respond to. <laughs> this is this is great advice for especially for being on the internet. <laughs> okay. Uh, so troll your way to confidence. Got it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the confidence thing is, though, a big thing. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You can have low confidence and be at, like, a job you tend to enjoy as well. So, yeah, hmm, I don't know. To me, confidence as an engineer takes time. Like, uh, and on the time scale of years. Like, I don't think there's an activity I could engage in to be like, ah, now I'm confident. After a few hours, days, or weeks, even months. I don't think I was really confident as an engineer until I had been at multiple companies, had been through lots of review cycles, had worked with lots of other engineers and seen how they work. And then I could say, oh, yeah, I can do this. Like, I'm not the best, not the worst, but I know where I am and I'm decent at this. Yeah. There's a bit of a confidence boost at, like, trying something that three years ago would have seemed really daunting. So I think it's always good to review what you knew before. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Jameson, you were trying to say something. I was trying to engage in the regular activity of Jameson tells stories about his dad podcast. <laughs> so I used to go golfing with my dad when I was a kid. And he was pretty good. I mean, he wasn't like fantastic, but he was he was solid. But every time he would walk up to the tee to hit a shot, uh, I guess I'm assuming people know stuff about golf. You hit a little white ball with clubs. You like start <laughs> off in one spot. You I love how yeah. you just I love how you just described an entire sport in like one sentence. That was great. Uh, it's really expensive. <laughs> that's the other <laughs> description of it. Uh, that's why I don't play it anymore. Um, but before he would shoot, he would just like look down at the ball and say, "I am great." And then he would hit. And like half the time it would not go very well. And he would just put another ball down and look down at it and say, I am great. And then hit. And then and be like, yeah. like That's so powerful. I am. I knew it. And it sounds so like cheesy and motivational when I say it. No, but no, no, no. That's I, like... I sometimes think about that. Like, I don't know. So this is There's like just... the ultimate sample bias, right? Because it's like, I am great. And until that ball goes where I want, I'm going to keep saying it until the ball tells me I'm great. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then when he hit a good shot, he was like, yeah. Like, see? <laughs> I don't know. But th- that's the thing, though, is like, if you had that level of like confidence and everything like that, that's not a key I want to unlock. Maybe that's what yeah. I just need to start doing. It's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm great. You know, yeah, I can't and- do this. <laughs> Jameson, you've shared a lot of advice from your dad, and it's all been good. This yeah. one is, just strikes me as kind of weird. <laughs> no, this is perfect. <laughs> that's a good description of him. He's great. <laughs> and he's kind of weird. Just like me. So let me okay, so let me say, I think what you're saying is, say you're great. Keep swinging, even if you screw up, which you will. Keep swinging, and eventually you'll be great. 
Yeah, like I I have this tendency to be like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and hit, and then if I hit the ball and it goes poorly, then I think like, see, it proves that I suck, and that's not. <laughs> Be, being confident isn't like never messing up or getting anything wrong that's just being perfect and then it's not confidence it's just like how reality is but i feel like there's something to to recognizing that you can do good things even if it doesn't always go perfectly yeah it's having faith in yourself yeah all right this analogy went from weird to pretty good okay <laughs> i'm glad i'm glad you saw it because the second I heard the I am Greg whispered to a golf ball, like it just, <laughs> it resonated with me. So you're saying, okay, go sign up for an interview. Yeah. But sit in your car, rub your temples, look in the rearview mirror, say I am great, and then walk in there and just fail spectacularly. Huh, yeah. And then do it again until I am great is true. I'm thinking of another emotion you could have where you look down at the golf ball and just whisper like, I'm going to smack the crap out of you, you little <laughs> stupid brown thing. And then Swing you're and fueled miss. by rage instead of confidence. I mean, that's how I do most things in my life. I'm driven by yeah, flight, that's, so. that's no, what I do when I take on Jira tickets. Depending like, on, you know, just so you know, like I am great is, a, is a, I think, a, a great thing to say. But depending on your alien race, you might want to say, I am Groot. Okay. <laughs> I, I, on, no uh, Did you? I gave it a chuckle. I gave it a chuckle. We got something there. Dave, I admire your confidence. <laughs> I can imagine you before you said that saying, this pun is going to be so good. <laughs> this is going to kill. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I just said I am great. And then I lunged into the pun. <laughs> well, have we answered the question? I think, I think so. so. Get out there. Get your confidence. Get interviewing. You got to do it. It's the only way to get out of a crappy job and get a good job is interviewing. That's the only thing between you and the next good job. And you got to do a lot of it. And you're going to have to do more of it than you used to have to do. So yep. brace for impact. Be prepared for rejections and go for it. Yeah. Practice. Log what you've done. Log Learning logging is also a great way to um, boost Ooh. confidence. So do those things. That's really good actual advice. It slipped in there at the end. Oh, I like that. Oh, finish thanks. line yeah. finish line advice yeah okay let's uh, read the next one i will read it this is from another anonymous listener i work on product development with about 25 other developers and management recently had us all embark on a journey to gain some level of cmi cmmi appraisal uh, cmmi stands for capability maturity model index i <laughs> index okay uh the goal is to deliver higher quality software at a more. Oh, I was wrong. Sorry. Back it up. <laughs> Sorry Confidence. Integration. Okay. Cool. Uh, I, but I it know won't that stop you from the, trying this again. question hinges on what the letter I stands for. So. Okay. Uh, in practice, this means that we got more process to follow, more meetings to attend, and more time tracking fuss. I'm trying to keep an open mind because I, as a programmer, also have high standards for the product and its development. I'm scared that programmers are being turned into factory workers stripped of any autonomy. These new processes don't allow me to do anything without my product owner's approval. I'm afraid it will limit my creativity and ultimately cause my work and the product to suffer. In this kind of scenario, what's your advice for a programmer who often gets inspired to remove tech debt, tinker with our dev environment, and otherwise make small improvements and refactorings that shouldn't require management approval? What's your opinion on the level of freedom that programmers should be provided in order to do their job well? Hmm. I Good guess question. for the class, we should probably define what CMMI is. Oh, Dave? man. This probably means I have to do it. <laughs> yep. I can read it yeah. off of Wikipedia, which is what I did earlier, but. <laughs> so I lived in CMMI level three 
for about seven years at my, uh, oh boy, a long time ago, about 10 years ago at a different company. Uh, oh, more than 10, sorry, <laughs> long time ago. Uh, basically, it is a process for tracking development artifacts to make sure that you follow uh, your own like best practices as prescribed by this institute that lives in the clouds and just showers down enlightened process on your company. And uh, basically, it means you have to produce a ton of paperwork, but it has basically no opinion on the actual engineering practices you follow when you're writing code or deploying or things like that. It's more like artifact, or sorry, like requirements, traceability, verification, stuff like that. Hmm. Um, and it, it tends to be tightly coupled with government contracting, which also tends to require uh, very detailed time tracking for billing purposes. So these things tend to come part and parcel. So there's CMMI in a nutshell. I didn't quite describe it as succinctly as Jameson described golf. But... <laughs> You'll get there. But like golf, CMMI is very expensive. <laughs> so Wikipedia tells me there are levels one through five. Level one says process unpredictable, poorly controlled and reactive. Does Agile. that just mean like, <laughs> yeah, everyone is automatically on CMMI level one? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the CMMI level five people are also on CMMI level one with a lot more documentation. <laughs> I, yeah. Did you, w was it a goal to, to bump your level up a couple more levels? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Like we got level three, you know, and that, what that means is you can bid on more government contracts, but you have to get five to bid on even more contracts, you know, different oh, kinds of contracts. Okay. Hmm. Is there a secret level beyond five? <laughs> it's like the unlocked it's level six. Yeah. You only know when you get to level five that there's more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, the Wikipedia page changes. <laughs> <laughs> only for you. It's really weird. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems uh. like they do a lot of this for like auditing purposes too, right? Like because they need to, people need to come and make sure they're doing the right things and that I guess all their ducks are in a row, things like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, that it's like a circular thing, though. It's like because in order to maintain your CMMI accreditation, you have to be willing to be subjected to an audit every year or two where they come in and troll through all your artifacts and make sure your requirements trace through and things like that. Mm. So it's, it's not so much like the customer has valuable audits they want to perform. It's more like the customer agrees, the vendor agrees that we want to be CMMI certified. So here's the audit you have to do. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can get that. I mean, <clears throat> I think lots of... Um, Lots of organizations, like financial and things like that, do some process of auditing. Um, so I guess even if it's not CMMI, there is a bit of process that a lot of tech companies go through, um, whether it's self-select or not, uh, to make sure that they're up to snuff. I know that we do kind of like SOX auditing and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do PCI stuff. In practice, that means like my team mostly doesn't... It, it means a bunch more work for me to shield them from a bunch more work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's so many of these things, right? Like HIPAA has its own rules, ISO 9001, all these different things. But at, you know what's interesting that I found? Is even though there's all these super rigorous processes and audit methodologies, at the end of the day, the comment that really stands out to me is, I'm scared that programmers are being turned into factory workers stripped of autonomy because this person is worried they won't be able to do things without their product owner's permission. And you know what I find really striking about that is that I feel like modern scrum teams actually can easily fall victim to this same thing, where it's like, Everything you must you do must have a ticket associated with it, and the ticket was put there and groomed and prioritized by the product owner. Yeah. And I'm like, it's not that different, really. And I feel like this trend is happening across the industry, and it seems to cross-cut both agile and these like process waterfall process heavy things like CMMI. 
Um, yeah, so uh, about the whole process thing, and, and you know, I mean, I'm in a pretty agile TDD XP kind of shop, and w I mean, the, the whole thing with the tickets and stories is that each ticket should have user value, right? And it's sometimes can, hard. Can I ask you to back up for one second? Mm -hmm. I think there might be people listening that don't know exactly what you mean by uh, Agile or XP. Oh, XP okay. is probably a little bit less familiar. So uh, XP is extreme programming. And, and so it's a lot of just kind of, uh, we do everything pair programmed. Um, everything is test driven. There's no like, we can't really submit code without tests. Um, and, and we're just like an Agile shop. So... Uh, I, I want to make sure that I'm actually defining it as Agile is and not just how we do it. Well, I'll just explain how we do it. Um, sure. We do uh, two-week iterations like sprints and, you know, retro. We do have story time in the between. And, um, oh, no. Sorry. I'm having some <laughs> cat issues. <laughs> that is adorable. Uh, okay. Um where was I? Right. So two week iterations and everything is kind of done via stories, kind of like um, what Dave was saying. And I, I don't know. Is that a good summary? I don't know. Uh, yeah. I don't know. So. Every time I hear the word extreme programming, I just think of like. It sounds really people, radical, doesn't it? Right? People jumping out of planes with like their fingers extended in the rock and roll <laughs> gestures. Yeah, know? it sounds way more intense. But a lot of it is that we we pair like nothing really gets into the code without uh, without being paired, right? So that's what we do. Um, what else? Uh, we we actually don't have like a QA. Like we don't have that at all. Um, we like because we have everything test driven. We we just kind of use that if that hmm. makes sense so unit testing and i mean in the absence of that it would be like code reviews but we don't really do that hmm. and then you know continuous hmm. development things like that there's also just the yeah the ongoing speed metal soundtrack yes all code is written too <laughs> yeah it's an open floor plan and then there's just like death metal playing it's pretty intense <laughs> Uh, sometimes I can convince them to play like Nordic as model, which is a little bit more somber, but <laughs> special occasions. I can just see like people's hair blowing by the subwoofer as they're focusing on their programming. Yeah, it, yeah. it's very intense, but it's it's I, I don't know it it's um it's hard to get used to, but it's it's fun. I like it. You know, you're really locked in with a pair when you start headbanging at the same rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you're in a flow state. <laughs> They know not to talk to you when you're headbanging. <laughs> but yes, uh, so the whole idea is that, uh, back to the process thing, is that every story is technically supposed to be user-facing. Like, what kind of value are you delivering to the user? And it's hard to kind of say that, you know, we're doing this off Kafka upgrade. It's hard to kind of sell that as like a user-facing value, um, which is, I mean, you, you can say it as like, if we don't do this upgrade, in X amount of X time, you're going to have to have more developers rip kind of out this whole infrastructure to replace it. Um, but there's something about just kind of doing that refactoring in the context of a story. So you're just kind of cleaning up where you are. You're in a bit of code and you have to update a bit of things. You refactor that function and you clean up that unit test so that it makes more sense and 
kind of rolling it into the current work that you're doing. So do you do you get your product owner's permission to extend the time span for a single story in order to do these tasks? Or do they are they just blissfully unaware? We do like estimate things up front and so a lot of times we will say like this part of code is is very old. I work in a pretty big legacy system too. It's like this part of code is really old and it's going to cost us to go and update this feature because maybe this feature can't even be done in this current system. So we might have to do some refactoring. And um, we, we let them know uh, sometimes and like, you know, sometimes it's a hard pill to swallow. And sometimes like sometimes the product owner will say, you know, we can't do that right now. And, and that's when you clearly explain to them, like, you are cutting a corner right now and you need to be willing to accept what happens afterwards. Right. You, you have to be accept, like technical debt has cost and you have to like your, your job is to kind of like when you're estimating things is you're saying this is what you'll cost you. And as a product owner, you have to weigh those costs. Right. And see like, like as an example is like, OK, if you choose not to do this now, you may go out to the parking lot this evening and find your <laughs> tires don't have any air. In there. I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, yes. That's when you flip the switch over to. Was it Nordic black metal? Yes. Norwegian black metal? <laughs> Norwegian Nordic black metal. Black metal Norwegian very, black metal. Uh, yeah, I might have said Nordic. Um, Norwegian black metal where it gets really scary and somber. Um, okay. No, it's just where you say, like, <laughs> we're not going to upgrade this thing, but, you know, we're going to be three versions behind and, you know, they're going to deprecate this system and we're going to be behind and, and it'll just be more painful down the line. And, w- I mean, we've done it. We've had to have occasions where... We have we have to have the whole entire floor take a day off so that we can upgrade this entire system, and you know you eventually have to explain to your product owner or product in general like you can avoid all of those hours of uh, developer time, which is money for the company where they could have been doing other things, not spending that whole day doing that if you had just you know a lot of a bit more time earlier. Yeah, it's a battle that you you gotta it's like picking your fights, right? Yeah, I feel like. I really like what you said about couching it in terms of cost to the company if they don't do it, because I don't know, I'm a developer. I know that there's part of me that just wants to go fix everything all the time. And there's always something new and shiny out there. And and if you just ask me like, hey, what should you work on to make this better? There's a chance that the, the list is infinitely long of things that, that would make it better. But um, I don't always just immediately think of it in terms of cost to the business and what would be most effective. So I think if if you really want to justify investing in technical infrastructure or dev tooling or things like that, the the easiest way to speak that to the business is in terms of money. And lost productivity can often be a thing like speed of deploys or speed of onboarding engineers or things like that. Um, Yeah, but if you can somehow turn it into a number instead of just, I, I feel like there's a tendency to hear developers complaining about technical things and just think it's the developer crying wolf. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, they're developers. They always complain about tech debt. That's what they do. And so you need to kind of make it stick out from that a little bit. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've done things where uh, we will log, we'll log like how many hours we spent working on bugs for this one system that's technically not our domain right it's it's mm-hmm. we have ownership of it but it's an old legacy system that keeps breaking and at some point we were saying like you know 30 percent of our story points for that agile week was spent on this broken system so and this is spread across 
you know, multiple, multiple iterations, multiple months. So you can see how we're not releasing the product that you really want us to release faster because this old thing, you won't let us go fix this old thing. And we can estimate how much it'll take for us to just go and do that for a couple weeks to fix it. Um, and, and coming to them with like metrics, it, it is like it takes time. You have to take time out of your day to like set that up. But a lot of times coming to them with the like, this is how many hours of my time, which billable is this much because let's say I work X amount of hours and this is how much I'm paid. It's, it's going to cost this. This is what it's costing you to not upgrade this. And you're doing CMMI level whatever, so you have all that documentation. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I'm not even uh, logging my time as as much as they are, I suppose. But um, yeah, if, if I've learned anything, it's that it's hard to explain technical debt to people who are not um, engineers. So you need to kind of frame it in terms of business value and money. Sometimes you need to kind of frame it in a way that other people will understand. Totally. And I think I think the risk here is that you bury business people in detail that they not only don't care about, but it's frustrating to them to have just like so many little technical bits spammed to them. Like, well, we need to refactor this and change that. And we have to replace this legacy system and upgrade this infrastructure. And they're just like, whoa, 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 Tiger. I just need to know, like, how much time are you going to spend on this? And I think a good product owner, it, their job is to be a liaison between the engineering team and the business and they can say things to the engineering team like, look, baked into every hour we work on this customer's project is X percentage dedicated to ongoing maintenance and operational improvements. And AKA refactoring and infrastructure upgrades and all those things. If your product manager, product owner can do that, I think you can have a really good relationship where you say, here's the level of detail we're gonna share with you. Um, here's what we're going to insulate you from. And our commitment is to keep these systems fresh and easily changeable so that in the future, when we get big sweeping requirements from customers, we can implement them confidently. Mm. The question asker feels concerned that there's not trust here, where yeah. the product owner doesn't give them permission to do anything, which basically means that they don't trust that it'll be actually useful. So it feels like there could be something to explore there to try and increase the trust between product and dev. Yeah. And and like you need to trust the product person too. If they're going to be telling you these are the important things to work on, then you should be able to trust that there's a reason for that and it's not just them making it up as they go along. It's probably a bigger question to answer though. How do you generate trust there? Yeah, that's a fundamental one. I mean, it's easier to develop trust when it hasn't been broken. So I don't know. In a perfect world, you have you haven't broken the trust. So your battery's not on low, so you don't have to kind of recharge it. And from there, mm. you can kind of, um, kind of just be like, if you're willing to believe me, if we do, if we refactor this system, it'll be easier when we have to do subsequent stories for X, Y, Z. But if that trust is broken, I don't know. I don't like the idea of like surreptitiously refactoring things and cleaning it up. But I mean, it could just be that you could, you know, limit a bit of refactoring when you're in a part of code to X amount of time mm -hmm. and just kind of do it as part of your story. And, you know, no, no one has to be none the wiser. <laughs> yeah. Right. One, one of the keywords I'm latching on here is tinker. And I think, you know, if you want to tinker with things, um, that sounds like something you would do on your hobby or on your free time. But this is a business who is paying you to deliver value. And if it's like, well, I just want to tweak this and change that, if it's really worth your effort doing, you should create an item in your backlog 
and you should track it and the team should agree that you should do it. Now, if it's like a five minute thing and you're just fixing a little broken window that you saw, that's not what I'm talking about. But if it's if you're going to spend a day tinkering with the development environment, like I think you owe it to your business to track that. And I'll give you an example. So like last week, I encountered a gap in some data at work where I'm like, oh no, our, our software is not producing data in this one situation that it's supposed to be. I created a story, talked to the team, and I went ahead and implemented the fix. As I was implementing the fix, I found three other major refactoring jobs that needed to happen on our code base. And my instinct was just to launch into those jobs right away and be like, I'm just going to include these with my fix. The um, people reviewing my code will thank me for yeah. <laughs> fixing all these unrelated things <laughs> yes, at the same time. Exactly. And, and initially <laughs> I did. I just went ahead and did it. I'm like, it's no problem. And then I realized my refactoring actually caused a bunch of issues. I had to roll back my changes and I decided, you know what? I shouldn't have done that. And so instead I put three new tasks on our backlog and I said, okay, we will prioritize these when it makes sense. And, and I think you owe it to your business to be responsible about what you're delivering and how you're spending your time because otherwise it's just a hobby. And, and, we love doing this, like as engineers, right? Like it's our, like we we love just like being consumed by making it just a little bit better, you know? Um, but at the end of the day, you are employed by a business and I think you owe it to them to show a little bit more responsibility than just tinkering. We talked last week about rockstar developers and part of being a rockstar is long self-indulgent solos. Yep. Yes. Where you just are like, stand back, everybody. <laughs> well, I, I also really like the kind of point you brought up, which is that when you did those refactors all in once, it caused subsequent problems, right? Which yep. is kind of goes back to like, when you chunked it out into smaller bits that were documented, you can be more thoughtful about doing those things as well. And, yep. you know, make sure that when you do that one chunk, it does it doesn't break everything else and it's it's kind of exactly. like that adding that additional process which like is really tedious and annoying and and sucks because you just want to do the thing actually makes it so that you do the thing better and cleaner and nicer and you slow down and you're not just playing heavy metal in the background <laughs> um, yep but it helps it helps i'm like one of those engineers who like really likes process to a certain extent I think it's a, it kind of helps. I find that it helps me when I write my code. It's not always better. It, it should never be that you're antagonistic with your product owner. Like So kind of back to this whole lack of trust, right? You don't want to ever have to like constantly feel like you're justifying making improvements. Like It, it always sucks to, to kind of have to f fight those battles, you know, and I've, I've been there. Um, but at the same end, like the process also helps because it makes you a bit more thoughtful and considerate about how you implement certain things. Yep. The the question ends asking, what's your opinion on the level of freedom that programmers should be provided in order to do their job well? And it sounds like we're kind of arriving at a consensus that there's definitely some give and take where this this situation seems like it's pretty far to one end of the spectrum where there's absolutely no freedom to do anything besides what the product manager tells you. And that seems weird. Ideally, there's back and forth where you have input in what's important in the product, including the vital role of, of surfacing technical issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, so now that we told you that, your problem is solved. Yes. Uh, <laughs> now you can just do that. <laughs> let me just make let me just make this comment that over the last like I don't know seven or eight years, I have noticed a trend of control moving away from engineers and into the hands of product management, where engineers are kind of relegated to this. You just implement the spec. I will write the spec. Will a CX a UX person will provide you pixel perfect mockups. You just make it look like this. Dave, sometimes you know? I dream about living that life. <laughs> or someone just tells me what to do. Yeah. I don't want to decide. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I want You've less sold control. Me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I accept. <laughs> <laughs> I accept this trend. <laughs> but I, I, I honestly believe that engineers who are more engaged in the process of defining the product actually do a better job at producing good product because they do have, they can have good ideas to contribute and they can if they have like a full end to end understanding they can do they can make choices that a product manager wouldn't tell them to make but their context that they have helps them make better choices so oh, yeah anyway I, I as much as it's nice to have someone tell you exactly what to do in your job every hour i push back on that idea quite a bit and i think programmers and product owners should be should be considered partners at the table defining the product not you know, one subordinating to the other. Yeah, I think it's always good to know enough about your domain to really question when something comes into your plate. Because when you question it, you can probably find the right answer. Um, a lot of times people are like, I want this. And how do I explain it? It's not like, it's kind of like saying you don't really want that. You think you want it because that's kind of how you've seen it. But what... If you ask the right question, you can actually get to the bottom of what really someone wants. And when you're engaged with your product, an engineer can can really say, like, well, do you really want to see the data in this shape? Because what is the question you actually want to answer? And mm -hmm. if that's the case, then this is probably not the thing that you want to see. You probably don't want to see the, you know, median. You want to see the, the average. I don't know. That kind of yeah. a thing, right? Where you really kind of drive down. And, and that's something that, you know, your product owner might not be willing to ask because they might be wanting to please someone. So you really, it, it's good to have good domain knowledge to ask those questions and really drive to the point of what they really want. Yeah. The, the situation I described where someone knows all the right answers and just tells me what to do has never occurred in practice where <laughs> the places I've worked where people have told me what to do in great detail, there's still been huge gaps in, uh, in, in design where there are still questions that need to be asked or in customer feedback or like if, if your product owner is omnipotent, then it's probably fine to do whatever they say without understanding it or questioning it. But anything besides that, there's going to be, they're not perfect. And, and the level of detail is not going to be complete to cover everything. So I think that makes sense. Uh, have we answered the question? Yes. I think so. Good luck. Good luck yeah. with your capability maturity model integration. Let us know what the fabled level six is and beyond. Maybe there's more <laughs> levels. Uh, well, you need to be at level five before you can know that, Jameson. I'm sorry. It's yeah. Maybe it's like more dimensions where our <sighs> our brains, as they exist, cannot even comprehend them. You can't um, handle level six. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even pronounce what is beyond level six in a way that you would understand. <laughs> Your mortal language is insufficient. Level eleven. <laughs> it's the closest I can get. Uh, what should people do if they want their own questions answered? Hit us up on softskills.audio and click on ask a question. You can give as much detail as you'd like. Uh, Netta, how can people find you on the internet or in real life? Uh, well, <laughs> well uh, in real life, I live in Southern California, and I guess that's as much as I'll give you. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I exist on Twitter, but I'm not really... Um, technical but you can follow me there it's my last name amini netta you can follow me there and i'll just talk about pop stars and, and share my thoughts what i'm drinking fantastic sounds yeah sounds delightful <laughs> all right thank you so much and we will catch you next week